What comes to your mind when you hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, it's not good, is it? Uh, you, might, you might think Guardians of the Galaxy with uh, Gomorrah, but, but that's not what this is about. This is about Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities. Uh, more than likely, when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about um, sexual perversion. Um, even in our culture today, uh, and in the dictionary, the, the town of Sodom is, is, is now utilized for a word to, uh, to describe sexual perversion of some sort of kind. Um, and the story of the judgment against the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah in the text we come to today has been well known through the last millennia, we, we the last number of uh, millennia. So, so um, I hear stuff like this, uh, I remember hearing stuff like this, I haven't heard anything for a while now, but, but something like, uh, man, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah if he doesn't judge this city or this country. He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah for that. Um, well, sure enough, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is infamous, uh, but the focus of the story we come to this morning is, is actually not so much on Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's about the reality of the sovereign, powerful, and righteous judge and the call for humanity to run from the sure condemnation and swift judgment into the merciful arms of the Creator and Redeemer. It, it's just, this, this message, as is true in all of Scripture, this message is particularly all about wanting Israel, who is on the edge of the promised land, to, to trust their God, to believe in their God. And that's, that's what we're called to do, not, not just to look at the badness of this city or this city or this country or this country. It is about the wrestling with sin that is inside of us and our, desire, our, our need to run to a Savior. You know, whether you've never heard that before or have heard that for the thousandth time, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that hope is in Him, um, what we need to consider this morning again is the fact that our only hope, the only hope that we have, the only hope that you have sitting here, the only hope that your neighbors have, the only hope that our country has, the only, and I'm talking about the country meaning like all the people in the country, the only hope ultimately that our government has, the only hope that Israel has, the only hope that Palestinians have, the only hope that Turkey has is in Christ and Him alone, in the mercy of God. Nothing, nothing is more important for us to hear this morning Nothing is more important for us to live in the joy and contentment and rest and provision that we were created for. Of all the messages that there are coming at us, this one is the most important. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God. Now perhaps you are lost in the weeds of the complexities of your life. Perhaps you're lost Drowning in the pool of sin or circumstances you face. Perhaps you are entirely disinterested and are happy in your sin and your rejection of God. Perhaps you're eager for more of the Lord. Wherever it is you are and find yourself in the depths of your mind and heart this morning, the sovereign, powerful, and present God who created you intends for you to know Him better, to trust Him more or entirely, and to find your hope entirely in Him, faith in Him. He, he wants us to trust Him. He wants us to believe in Him. He wants us to turn from our sin, turn from our selfish ways, turn from all that, and run to Him. The simple gospel story. Um, that's what He wants us to hear again, about the mercy of God. So the, I think the temptation for us can often be, you know, we've heard this before, we've heard this a hundred times, we've heard this a thousand times, and yet we so often don't live in the good of it. We so often don't view the people around us or the people around this world through the lens, through the lens that we're going to see this morning. We only see them through a certain lens that we might see on TV, but every single person on this planet is in desperate need of the mercy of God. This morning, I want to just go through both chapters 18 and 19, then make five observations, and then four applications. But first, I want to read the text. So Genesis chapter 18 and 19, and this will take a few moments, but 
This is God's word, so we don't want to just leave it sitting there um, and assuming on it. So would you stand? It'll be for a little bit, but let's stand. This is the authoritative word of the Lord in narrative form. God wanting us to know this specifically. He says, this is Moses writing, And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, well, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were, were old, advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Well, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The Lord said then, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that's come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous persons who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find Sodom at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak, suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we're going to spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. 
And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any men. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, that is the, the two men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were, wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. So escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in the cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our fathers. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of of the Ammonites to this day. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, two points that I want to make, or I just want to walk through the text. I got want to walk through chapter 18 and chapter 19, and again, then we'll have some observations and some applications. As we jump into chapter 18, we're immediately told that Abraham, or that, that Yahweh appears to Abraham. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. Don't let that going to go in one ear and out the other. Yahweh, in your Bibles, it's going to be capital L-O-R-D. It's, it's Yahweh that meets with Abraham, just in a normal situation. He's, he's, it's in the, hot, the heat of the day. He's, he's, he's hot, so he's sitting under a tree in, a, in front of his tent, or in the door of his tent, and here comes Yahweh and two other guys. Um, not a spokesman for Yahweh, not not only Yahweh that sits in the heavens, 
but the Lord Yahweh in the flesh. Come in the flesh. It's hard to know whether Abram really knew or knew that these men were, were who they were. He, he, not sure if he really knows that at this point. He asked, though, he uses the word Adonai, Lord, to, to ask him to stay with him, to, to not pass him by, to just to stay for a bit. And Eastern hospitality kicks into gear. Um, he and Sarah and a farmhand prepare a, a meal for them, and Abraham stood by them, angels and Yahweh, under the tree in the heat of the day. And we read things like this, and we're like, huh, okay, that's what happened. Could you imagine? Just put yourself in Abraham's place. Yahweh and a couple of angels hanging out with you under the tree that you sit under during a normal day. You might imagine normal conversation ensued while the men were eating and drinking. Do you feel the normalcy of the situation? And do you, feel the, do you see the glory of the situation? One moment, Abraham is trying to simply cool off in the heat of the day, and then Yahweh comes near with purpose to spend time with Abraham. We see just a bit later that the three had come for a couple of purposes. The, the second purpose that we'll get to in a moment has to do with judgment, but the first purpose has to do with mercy. Um, the three men certainly did not need to go to the Oaks of Mamre uh, on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. They could have just gone there, but with purpose, they went to speak some specific things to Abraham. He came to make clear the covenant promise he made to them already that we spent time considering in the last three weeks. We, chapter 17, verse 16 says, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, he heard that. Now he's hearing it more specifically again, and just, just a year off now. The covenant-making God, Yahweh, comes to bring more clarity. It's, it's going to happen, he says. The Lord says that in one year, he will give Sarah a baby boy. He, she would have a son in her arms. And Sarah responds, probably just like you and I would respond if our 90-year-old grandmother said that God spoke to her, that she was going to have a baby. I mean, would you not go, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, of course, the 90-year-old grandmother might also not want to have a baby, right? But the, the reality right here is they, they are, this is the promised one. This is, I mean, things were different back then too, but, but God was at work in, in giving them, giving them increasing um, understanding into what he was going to do with a specific timeline in place. And so Sarah laughs, God, God uh, chuckles, I don't think she like necessarily laughs out loud, but just kind of chuckles like, like we would. And, and God says, no, you, di you did laugh, don't, don't lie about it, you did laugh. And so there's some unbelief in that reality, but God is saying, nothing is too hard for me. Nothing is too hard for me. I can, I can create everything you see and everything you don't see with a word of my power, is this too hard for me? Absolutely not. He will accomplish it sovereignly. It's a, it's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's been appointed, verse 14. Nothing is going to get in the way. Not Sarah's unbelief, not Abraham's tendency to lie, which we're going to see again next week. Not the wickedness of the nations or the actions of the enemies of Yahweh. The child will come about this time next year. Count on it. I will be true to my faithful covenant promises. I will be faithful to it. Sarah, you will have a son. You see the, the words in there. You shall have a son. You shall. You will. You will. You will. It's all this certainty. Not because the certainty is in Sarah, but because the certainty is in Yahweh. In verses 18 through 19, we read of Yahweh coming through Abraham's area purposefully to restate and remind both Abraham and Sarah of his covenant promise. Now, Yahweh seemingly speaking in the text to, to the two other men whom seems are, are angels that continue on to Sodom, um, gives us insight into what he thinks. He, he speaks in first person as Yahweh. Again, not a spokesperson, not Gabriel, not Michael, somebody else, but, but Yahweh. And whether rhetorically or by the way of thinking aloud, Yahweh wonders about telling Abraham what he was about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. Should I, should I tell him? Should I tell him what we're going to do? He wonders aloud because of five things that he wants Abraham to know and to not be distracted by. He wants him to know, again, that Abraham will surely be a great and mighty nation. 
that, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him, that he was chosen by Yahweh, by the very one speaking. He was chosen so that his household would keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, and that he and his household were to walk in the way of the Lord so that Yahweh could respond with the blessing of the promise that they were to experience. And immediately after restating all these things, the Lord shares what he was about to do. For he came to not only reaffirm the merciful covenant promise that he made, but to do something about the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. There, there is blessing to, to remain under the promise, to remain in the promise of God, to remain in his covenant. There is blessing. There is, there is in faithful obedience, living in obedience to God, to the one who is making the covenant with us. There is blessing, but there is judgment that awaits those who reject him and who walk in disobedience to him and unbelief in him. In verse 16, we read that they look down towards Sodom, so they're, they're up on a hill a little bit, just, just um, west of the Jordan, and they're looking down across, I think, across the Dead Sea, and so they're, they're looking, and um, Yahweh tells Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and their sin very serious, very grave, and that he was going to go down and see for himself. We've heard that kind of language before, haven't we? Um, after Cain killed his brother Abel, Yahweh confronted Cain and said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Um, when injustice and great sin is taking place, not only the cries of people rise to God, but the very blood of his image bearers cries out from the ground. So great is the sin, so great is the cry that Yahweh has decided to destroy the cities. This is no small thing, right? He's destroyed the whole earth before, so you can do that in, in one fell swoop, but, but he's wanting to specifically come down and destroy these two wicked cities. Their demise is certain. Certain because God knows all that's happening. Certain because he sees all that's happening. He knows the heart of those who are in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knows that they will not repent. He knows that there's not even ten righteous there. And so we see Abraham interceding for any righteous in the cities, and, and yet he understands uh, not even 10, Abraham. He knows his own. He always has, and he always will. He knows you, he sees you, he knows your neighbor, he sees your neighbor. He knows your friend, he knows your dad, he knows your mom. He knows your son, daughter. He knows the president. He knows everything about everybody. Still, Yahweh goes down to sea, much like we see at the Tower of Babel. Not that he's up in heaven, kind of not sure what's going on, so he's got to come down and see. It's just that he wants to specifically, I think, communicate that when Yahweh judges, it's not as the gods of the nations who just kind of sit sit and they like throw a lightning bolt and throw a lightning bolt and throw a lightning bolt kind of picture. This is a just judgment. This is God knowing everything. God even coming down to see for himself, per se. Yahweh's judgment is always guaranteed to be just. One, one other thought here is from verse 22 and following. Um, just, just, the, just the quick statement that said, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. That, that, that proximity thing, I just wanted to get at for just a second. That the Lord, Yahweh, was near. In fact, some commentators say that Hebrew, the Hebrew initially said that the Lord still stood beside Abram. The Lord hadn't left. The Lord still stood beside him. But evidently, the Jewish scribes felt like that... that that um, kind of made God a little bit too friendly, a little bit too close, that there's still this creator-creature distinction that needed to place. But what, what God is teaching us here is that, is that God came and dwelt with Abraham, spent time with Abraham, and that's a good thing. Make some observations of all this in just a few moments, but just to take note that in chapter 18, we've become more aware of the presence and sovereign plan of God. So much more could be said, but let me move on. Chapter 19, the power and righteous judgment of God is what we're going to look at now. In verse 1, we see that there are only two men 
who approached Sodom, two angels specifically. They, they came to Sodom. In chapter 18, we saw again that there were three. Somewhere along the line, it seems as though Yahweh, the Lord, went his way. Verse 33 of chapter 18. Who, who, who is left then are the two angels? They'll be the ones to confirm if the evil of the city is as bad as the outcry has been and to accomplish what God had already sent them for. So upon coming into the city, Lot sees them. He's sitting at the gate of the city, which is a, a sense of he was a, a leader. He was an elder. He was, a, he, uh, he was somebody who was um, even well thought of in the city. He was respected. He would have been uh, not, not like a mayor necessarily, but, but one of those, like somebody that has some sort of authority in the city sat by the gate. Um, consider that the last time we heard about Lot, we read two things. First, that he set up his tent near Sodom. Second, the men of Sodom were wicked. Now, just a couple of chapters later, we see that the men of Sodom are still wicked, perhaps even more wicked, but we also see that Lot has chosen to not just live in a tent outside near Sodom, but to actually set up house in Sodom. Specific text doesn't really tell us anything more, but it seems strange to me that Lot chose to live there amid that wickedness with his two daughters, and actually had two sons-in-law that he incorporated into his family. It sure doesn't seem to me, as we're reading along here about Lot, that he's a very righteous guy. He concerned himself with the welfare of the city, which is good, but upon seeing the two angels, who chapter 18 clearly communicates that they look like two men, uh, Lot welcomes them into the city, just like Abraham did kind of like welcome him into his home. I mean, uh, Abraham uh, did that as well. There's this Eastern hospitality thing that happens. Somebody has to, welcoming these men into their home. So Lot did the same as Abraham. He, he made him some food and, and they started spending time together. The angels, you remember, they wanted to spend time in the, in the square. Um, and Lot's like, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. Um, come into my house. Um, they would have been ravaged. Well, as it turns out, they would not have been ravaged. But from Lot's standpoint, they would have been ravaged. And I mean ravaged. Lot seems to be entirely unaware of who these two men were, just important visitors, guests, but he was entirely aware of what his people were like. So in the supposed protection of Lot's house, we come to not only hear about the wickedness of the men of Sodom, but we see it clearly in their actions, these men of Sodom, and take note that it was all the people to the last man, not even ten righteous, began to bang on the door of Lot's house and demand that Lot give them over so they could do with them as they please. And it's just entirely immoral. It's, it's unbelievable immorality, really. Except, what, what do we see next? We see Lot saying to those guys, to those wicked men, and there's something about Eastern hospitality here as well, but, but listen, you offer your two virgin daughters to the men of the city in place of these guests. I get that there's Eastern hospitality, but that's wicked. There's a, there's a, a protection of one's own family that, that usurps other things. It seems to me that Lot's taken on some of the characteristics of the men of Sodom. Nevertheless, the men wanted what they wanted. They demanded to be let in, so they even accused Lot of being their judge. Like, who are you to say anything to us? Um, and because you said something, you know, if we get a hold of you, you're going to be treated worse than we were going to treat them. And so um, the two men bring him back into the house, shut the door. These two men weren't just men. They, they were powerful angels, messengers of God. And they struck in some way. They struck the men with blindness, so they become rather powerless to do anything. And the two angels of God had seen enough. Judgment was certain for these cities. Uh, in fact, verse 13, we read that the angels were sent by God to destroy them. So this was just like an affirm a confirmation of that which was already going to happen. Still, amid all of this, the mercy of God. Still amid Lot being Lot, in his unrighteous deeds, seemingly, there's mercy. 
They tell Lot to get his family to leave the city or else they would be swept away in the judgment. And like it is today and like it was in Noah's day, the the sons-in-law thought Lot was joking as they sat in their godlessness. Two men who were planning on marrying Lot's daughters, men whom Lot know well. He knows them well. He spent time with them. He's going to let them marry their daughters. But two men who didn't respect nor listen to Lot, just like the rest of the men of the city. So as the morning dawns, we find that the sons-in-law, they're gone. They've gone to be with the other men, evidently. All who are left is Lot's wife, Lot and Lot's wife and his two daughters. There aren't even ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, so judgment is imminent. The the angels demand that they hurry, but Lot lingers. This is his home. This is where he's comfortable. These are his people. As wicked as they are, these are people that he seems to care for. And though all four of them deserve to be swept away in the judgment against the city, verse 16 tells us that God was merciful to them. God was specifically merciful. They, they, They intended, they lingered, they wanted to stay But God was merciful to them and rescued them out of his judgment. To the point where it says they dragged them out of the city. And once out of the city, the angels told them to run. Don't look back. Don't look back. Let it it go. Let them go. Let them go and run for your lives. You've been given mercy. Nevertheless, Lot was not thrilled with the whole thing, and he pled with the two men to allow him to go to a little town just a short distance away. This was a town that seemed to also be under the judgment of God, but Lot thought it to be small enough to not be as wicked, not be as bad. It's just a small little town. Turns out the town was a town that he became very afraid of to even live there, so he went up into the mountains. Lot wanted what he wanted, and it seemed that while he may be fearing his life, he didn't seem to be fearing the God who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Nevertheless, the two men allowed him to go to Zor, and, and, and the judgment would not fall on them at that time. And so hot was the judgment of God, so hot was the fire and brimstone that fell from heaven, um, the lingering and longing look of Lot's wife swept her away in the judgment as well. She, she utterly disregarded the command of the Lord, longing for the wickedness of that city of man, and she was swept away. Now, I don't know what was in her heart, but there's something that caused her to, to not just simply look around, look, look behind her, because they had already ar- arrived in the city. They were already in the safe confines of the city that God had promised to not destroy. It seems as though, like looking back, intimates that she was looking a city, wanting. We'd be right to imagine the trauma that ensued on the remaining family members. Something like that happens to your mom, to your wife. So devastating was that fire that Abraham saw the smoke rising up from a great distance away. So merciful was the Lord that he remembered the intercession of Abraham, that he protected Lot, even though he certainly doesn't seem to be the icon of righteousness. But so Lot ends up living with his daughters in the hills outside of Zor in a cave, and his daughters become so upset that they don't have any sort of man to have relations with so as to produce offspring that they make some specifically difficult, wicked choices to be impregnated from their father. And uh, both, both uh, result in, in the people of Moab and the people of Ammon, the Ammonites and the Moabites, both who would be enemies of God, both, both who would, although Ruth comes out of Moab, which is a pretty interesting twist to the story, but, um, but these, are, these are two nations that Israel, sitting at the edge of the promised land, like now understand where they came from. It's quite a story. And so much to consider here in this story. But let me just make five, hopefully quick observations. Observation number one is our God is present. Our God is present. We see that God is present and aware of what's happening in the world. He's not a distant God. He is near. He is listening. He cares and he sees and he knows. He's intimately acquainted with Abraham. He's intimately acquainted with Sarah. They are his chosen ones. They are his people. And he is purposefully present to them. This has been true throughout God's word and it will remain a key reality in the rest of scripture. That God, 
Yahweh is present. He is, he is near. He is near to the brokenhearted. He came near. We'll see the application in just a few moments. Observation one, our God is present. Observation two, our God is the sovereign king. He is not only sovereign in his plans, uh, but also in his absolute supremacy. He is over all things. The, the nations rage and, and the people's plot, but they do so in vain, Psalm 2. Nothing will disrupt his plan to fulfill his promises. We see that in his declaration, the specific declaration that in one year, who can, who can say that? God can say that. In one year, Isaac will be born to two elderly people. We see this in the purposed judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as well, the, the sovereign kingship of God. This is power, and this is sovereignty in action. Observation three, our God is the righteous judge. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Um, nothing is hidden from his knowledge. Men may believe that they are unaccountable, but they are absolutely 100% mistaken. God sees all Things and outside of his mercy, there is only judgment. There's only two options mercy or judgment. And perhaps the judgment is far into the future, or perhaps it's soon as it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Either way, judgment is certain for the enemies of God, no matter how seemingly secret or public their sins are. We see that judgment is his not someone else's. This judgment is just because he is just. He hears the blood crying from the ground and he investigates thoroughly before he passes sentence. Nobody is going to be misjudged. The guilty will be punished and the righteous will be delivered. Nothing will go unpunished that requires punishment. All evil, all sin, all wickedness will come under the righteous judgment of holy God. Nothing and no one will escape. And we see that when judgment comes, it will be sure and it will be swift, and it will be absolutely complete, and no one will stay his hand. Our God is the righteous judge. Observation four, our God is full of mercy. Thank God that's true. In the dialogue with Abraham, Yahweh promises that the righteous will not face the holy wrath and judgment being brought against Sodom and Gomorrah. One commentator states emphatically, the righteous may be confident that the righteous judge of the earth will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Consider that even though Lot sure doesn't seem to be righteous and is more inclined to stay put in these wicked towns, that the Lord saves him. The Lord rescues him and his family. He's merciful. And we'll consider this more in just a few moments. Observation five. Humanity is in desperate need of the mercy of God. We're those who tend to linger in our sin, like Lot. We're those who question the Lord in unbelief, like Sarah and Lot. We're those who look back longingly in our desire to love the world, like Lot's wife. We are those who try to make our own way, like the daughters. And ultimately, we can so often choose the godless way of Lot and his family over the imperfect yet righteous way of the life of faith as shown in Abraham. We deserve to be judged, all of us. Every single person who has ever lived and who will ever live on this planet deserve to be judged, and we are desperate for mercy. Our only hope. Now, let me get to four applications. First application. Though often seemingly far off, the Lord is truly with us, so rest in him. He's near to the brokenhearted. We need not be anxious for the Lord is at hand. Fear not, for I am, what? With you. He is an ever-present help in trouble. And so, so draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And how do you draw near but through His Word and by the Spirit? As the Spirit works in us, as we meditate on the truths of Scripture, we will find rest. We will rest in His promises that He will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter the sorrow you feel. We'll rest in the promise that He is truly with us to the end of the age. We will be able to find rest in Him amid marital conflicts, amid difficult parenting situations, amid unmet desires, and that one thing that causes such significant fear to to you. What is that thing? The Lord is near. The Lord, in fact, came near. Came near not just with Abraham, but he's come near a number of times, but he came near mostly in who? Jesus Christ. 
He became flesh. God became man and dwelt among us. Jesus himself said that before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, Yahweh. Jesus claimed to be God. He is near. He is the Savior. He is the one whom we need to find mercy in. He is, he's not simply our God. He's not simply a visiting God that shows up at certain times like, like Gandalf does in Tolkien novels, uh, but as the God who is always with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us, always saying He's with us. And not only that, if that weren't enough, He's given us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and empowers us moment by moment by moment to know the will of God and to follow Him. And, and, and He is the one who's interceding for us, both Jesus and the Holy Spirit, praying for us, coming alongside of us to strengthen our hands that we would be sure of our adoption, as sons and daughters, and to live in all the goodness that that affords us. We find the rest and promise, find the rest that we need in the promises of God that all find their yes and amen in Jesus. And so the question is, do you know Him? Do you know them, the promises? Do you know the God of the promises? But plan this week to memorize Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Sit, sit in that for a moment. Lord Jesus sent his spirit that call, causes us to cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father. And we're heirs of the kingdom. There's so much rest in all of that. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Rest in the arms of your Father and in the love of the Son and in the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit. Second application. Though often seemingly silent, the Lord speaks and guides us. So trust and obey Him. Now, whether Sarah's mistrust of the sovereign's Lord, sovereign Lord's plan or the multiplicity of foolish choices and law in his family, we see that our tendency as humanity is to distrust the words of God. We saw that in Adam and Eve, and we see that to the very end of time, and we see it in our own hearts. We doubt his promises. We doubt his plans. We question his authority. We try to make our own way. We disobey him. And to disobey him has consequences. But we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus and not look back longingly to the things of this world, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, to, to relinquish all that we have, to, to as we prayed earlier, to, uh, to um, present our bodies living sacrifices. Choose to offer our lives that way, to believe his word, to trust his word, to trust him and walk in obedience to listen to his voice, both in scripture and in those quiet moments where the Lord is speaking to you, directing you towards walking in obedience, correcting you, challenging you, encouraging you. The Apostle John writes this in 1 John chapter 2. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So, friends, if you have trusted in Jesus, obey him. Know that he is your father. He's adopted you. You've been justified. You've been regenerated. You're sanctified and you're being sanctified. So trust him and live according to his word, Steve and church. Third, though often seemingly permissive, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So repent before him. The Lord sees and knows all things. Our sins cry out from the ground. The sins of the nations cry out from the ground. And there's many sins that are being cried out from the ground even now. The injustices, the crimes, the immoralities, the blasphemies, the outright rejection of Jesus. The, the Romans one kind of life that has been given over to sin where men and women uh, call, men and women are, 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 are making decisions to, to live in a way that is anti-God. Exploring all sorts of sexualities. Gen you know all the things, gender confusion, lying, cheating, um, but, but the sexual immorality piece, just giving their lives over, and perhaps some of you, giving lives over to sexual sin. Um, but in our culture, it's like these things are celebrated, um, not just 
endured. It seems at times that the Lord allows the guilty or the wicked to do so well while the righteous are often swept away. But he does see, and the judge of all will call to account those who reject him for the God of their own making. There is no neutrality with sin. All sin ends in death, and then after that, the judgment. The Apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter 2. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if the turning of the cities of if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the central conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteousness, righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep, his, uh, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Jesus told his hearers in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, that judgment, when it comes, will be swift. So stay awake, stay alert. It, it, this, this judgment is eternal. It's a, it's a similar manner to Sodom and Gomorrah the Apostle John speaks of in the vision of the final judgment in Revelation chapter 14, when it says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, and what that, what that really means is someone who's living for the world and not for God, living for the, the things of this world, living for the nations and not God, living for Babylon, per se, as he speaks of in other passages around this. So he receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name." Whoever lives for the world, whoever rejects God, whoever lives for themselves in unbelief, the Bible tells us, don't linger, repent now, do so now, today is the day of salvation. So the action is simple, repent of your sins, repent of your love for the world, of the various deeds of the flesh, and turn to Christ by faith. Now the last application, and we'll close. Though often seemingly misunderstood or forgotten, the Lord is merciful and slow to anger. So believe on him. Judgment is sure. And if you run to God for mercy, mercy is sure. The world's come to believe that God is just an angry, vengeful God. Certainly he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Absolutely. Absolutely. Certainly it's true that God's holy wrath remains on those who don't trust on Christ and continue to live apart from him, not as neutral, nice guys who just kind of hopefully will get through, but as hostile enemies of God. But it's just as true, and perhaps more primarily true in order of the way that he describes himself, that our God is a God of mercy. He's he's marked by slowness to anger and abounding in in steadfast love. His, His mercy is is much more vast than the ocean. This is what we've seen throughout Genesis so far, and it's what we'll see throughout the whole of Scripture. As those who are desperate for mercy, he offers tons of it. So repent and believe on him. Now consider Lot just for a moment. He has not seemed to be righteous. You read the story and you're just shocked at some of the things he says or does and just wonder what else is there. But in the text we just read in 2 Peter 2, verse 7, it says something confusing. And it says this in verse 7, 2 Peter 2, 7. If he, God, rescued righteous Lot. Righteous Lot? I thought for sure this guy's not righteous. Righteous Lot? He's greatly distressed by the central conduct of the wicked. And it goes, goes on to say that then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So how, how is Lot righteous? I mean, seriously. Lot is a sinner, clearly. But in 2 Peter, it's declared that he's righteous. So what's up with that? And Peter tells us that the sin all around him in Sodom troubled him. So maybe it's that. I say, no, it's not that. 
Although there was a, maybe a mark of that which was true of his life. So what is it that declares Lot righteous? It's the same as you and I. What, what is it that declares us righteous? Who, who is it that declares us righteous? When it says that God remembered Abraham in chapter 19, verse 29, he, he remembers his covenant promises. God remembers his covenant promises. Abram, or Abram is declared righteous because of his faith in God and in his promises. Lot, similarly. The Lot wasn't very faithful. God remained entirely faithful. And Lot was declared righteous and he was delivered and he was rescued. And just like all the rest who are children of Abraham are. As such, we, he was shown mercy, undeserved favor, forgiveness with God, acceptance in the beloved. This was true of Lot. Seemingly unrighteous, but declared righteous. Justly. Peter told the first century church that all God's people are entirely and forever grounded on the righteousness, not of themselves, but of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One scholar, pastor, says this, Like Lot, I have also been declared righteous because of what Christ has done for me. And at the end of days, I will be proclaimed righteous because I have been united to the true righteous one. No person is proclaimed righteous apart from Christ, but all who are in him are declared righteous along with him. This is how Lot could be righteous even in the midst of his sin. Now, this is the beauty of the merciful gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, that the Lord is our salvation. Peter could call someone like Lot righteous because of the faithfulness of God to his covenant promise. And you and I, if we're in Christ, can also be called righteous and accepted, even though we know the sin in our hearts, even though we know often the longing to love the world and the things that are in the world. If we're in Christ, we can be called righteous and accepted and beloved and justified and adopted because we will also find God to be just as faithful to the Abrahamic covenant in the new covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ, Jesus. The Israelites needed to be reminded of this mercy and justice of God. They needed to be reminded that in placing their hope in God, there was mercy and life and forgiveness and blessing. And they needed to be reminded that to reject God in unbelief and sin was to invite the just judgment of God. And what you and I need to know and what our neighbors need to know and what people in Turkey need to know and what people in every nation on this planet needs to know this morning is the same. This, that the fire of God's righteous judgment is coming. And the only way of deliverance is in Christ Jesus alone. That must be on my tongue. That must be in my heart as I'm interacting even with my sin. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. All those who are found in Christ will be declared righteous and be given mercy. And will escape the fires of hell. Why? Because Christ Jesus took on all the wrath of God for my sin. May this message of the Lord's mercy and justice be on our hearts and on our minds and in our conversations as we engage all we come in contact with.